Welcome, I'm Doug Morgan, and you're listening to Uncommon Sense, where we hunt for the truth in the topics you're not supposed to talk about, Christianity and politics. We need to segregate them out of our society and make sure that we don't have contact with them. Now, (laughs) if I had said that, about any group in America, you would be alarmed, wouldn't you? Well, one of the miracles performed by Jesus and documented in the Bible was the healing of the leper. This was a contagious disease, leprosy, that really scared many throughout history. And if you ended up getting it, you were segregated from society. Before and and even after the discovery of its biological cause, leprosy patients were were stigmatized and and shunned for years and years and years. For for example, in in Europe during the Middle Ages, leprosy sufferers had to wear special clothing. They, They had to ring bells to warn others that they were close and even walk on a particular side of the road. And it depended on the direction that the wind was was coming from. Even in modern times, leprosy treatment has often occurred in separate hospitals from others, and and live in colonies that are that are called uh, leprosariums because of the the stigma of the disease. Now, the History Channel uh, says for millennia, a, a diagnosis of leprosy meant a life sentence of social isolation. People affected with the condition now known as Hansen's disease, a bacterial infection that ravages the skin and nerves and can cause really painful uh, disformities. Um, They were typically uh, ripped from their families. They were showered with prejudice and, and cruelty and exiled into lifelong quarantine. Now, in the United States, believe it or not, I mean, you think of this as a kind of a biblical type of disease or, you know, something from the Middle Ages or whatever. But but literally in the United States, patients were confined to a handful of remote settlements where over time a crude existence evolved into one of the uh, with small kind of touchstones of, of normalcy. But patients were consistently deprived of fundamental civil liberties because of this. They were deprived to, of, of their civil liberties to, to work and to, to move freely and see loved ones, to, to vote, to raise families of their own. Some who bore children had their babies forcibly removed from them. And by the 1940s, yes, the 1940s, after a cure emerged for the condition, the, the science made clear that most of the population had natural immunity to it. So there was a natural immunity that, that, that was to this leprosy or this Hansen's disease. Other countries began to abolish compulsory isolation policies. But in the U.S., even as leprosy patients' health and, and conditions improved, old stigmas fear uh, of the, you know, conjunction of, of, of outdated laws kept by, by many confined for decades longer. In, in a tiny number of, of Hansen's disease patients still remain 
at a place in Hawaii, believe it or not, uh, Kalapapa, a, a, a leprosarium established in 1866 on a remote but actually breathtakingly beautiful spit of land. I've seen pictures of it there in, in Hawaii on the island of Malakai. Um, thousands lived and died there in the intervening years, uh, in, including a later canonized saint, believe it or not. But by 2008, so just not that long ago, the settlement's population had dwindled to 24. And by 2015, I mean, we're talking six years ago, that only six remained full-time there. Despite having long been cured, they, they still remained there. Now, in their 80s and 90s, of course, uh, many residents first arrived on the island as children, and they knew really no other life than that. And, quote, when they came here, the law guaranteed them a home for life. And that can't be taken away, said Dr. Uh, Sylvia ha uh, Haven. Yeah, and a, and she's a, a doctor at the Islands Hospital. And she told the New York Times in 1971 um, that for some reason that the, the, the home for life translated more closely to a prison, however picturesque it looked like. She said, quote, you were brought here to die. And and th this this was the sentiment of even a sister who first uh, came to um, Molokai in, in 1965. Uh, in, in, and she said this in a 2016 interview, that you were not able to leave the island. So, of course, it seemed to them like it was a prison. While patients, families could visit, uh, they were housed in separate quarters and allowed to communicate through a chicken wire screen. How, how terrible would that be? It said, quote, they catch you like a crook and you don't have any rights at all, said a longtime patient uh, there. And she wrote this in a 1988 autobiography. She said, they didn't care uh, about ruining a life. She, she said, I was just a number. That's it. Now, Kalapapa is one of a small handful of leper colonies in the United States. Uh, among them were tiny, um, this, this, this tiny island uh, that is um, off of Blizzards Bay, which is just off the coast of Massachusetts, and the, the Carvile National Lepatorium in Louisiana, uh, with almost 8,000 patients over the 150 years. Now, Kalapapa is one of the, the, the far largest colonies uh, of these. But, um, but now, with, with that in mind, let's consider what is happening today. Proof of vaccination rules are being considered in Seattle restaurants. From the seattleeater.com, this article comes, and it, it's, it just kind of blows you away. And it's not just Seattle, as you'll see. It says, it, it seems that an official vaccine requirement for dining out in Seattle is a matter of when, not if. Now, on Tuesday, September 7th, the King County Executive uh, Dow Constantine, he announced that the local public health department is working on developing a COVID vaccine verification policy for some non-essential business activities and other venues in the region. Though Constantine didn't 
specify which businesses would fall under the, you know, the now underdeveloped uh, policy. He, ref- he, he referenced modeling the plan after cities such as New York and San Francisco, as well as British Columbia, all areas which either currently require proof of vaccination to dine at restaurants or they soon will. Now, he also name dropped uh, Kalama uh, and, and Jefferson counties uh, in Washington, the state of Washington, both of which recently instituted their own rules that diners need to provide vaccine verification at restaurants. But full details on the strategy are still to come after King County officials meet with community organizers, labor unions, businesses, and city authorities, of course. Uh, even if the, the county settles on a, a policy soon, it would likely not really go into effect until maybe early October at the earliest. <laughs> We're not talking about that far away. Even at the, the highly contagious Delta variant continues to spread, uh, they, you know, they're, they're, they're talking about, you know, may, well, may, you know we're going we're, we're to institute this in, in October sometime. King County's COVID case rate remains at an elevated level, it says here, and hospitalizations have, have ticked up in recent weeks. Currently around 78% of eligible residents, uh, 12 and, and older in King County have completed their vaccine series. So that they actually have a pretty high rate of vaccination there. Now, Constantine's announcement also comes as several major Seattle sport venues, including uh, Lumen Field, Husky Stadium, and the, the forthcoming Climate Pledge Arena. Um, that's, uh, of course, where their, their new hockey team is going to be playing. Um, announced their, their own proof of vaccination policies for entry. A dramatic shift from just a few weeks ago when even mask wearing was optional outside. Now, King County has since instituted a stricter mandate for face coverings at large outdoor events of 500 people or more, uh, whether one is vaccinated or not. And of course, that comes down because of the whole state of Washington uh, making that a mandate. But compared to New York and San Francisco, Seattle is a bit behind the times on broader proof of vaccination policies for dining out. Both city officials uh, both cities officially began their, their mandates in mid-August, and Seattle is just now getting to them. Um, that has left it mostly up to local establishments to institute their own vaccine policies, and more than 140 local bars and restaurants have done so. It, for, for its part, the, the mayor's office seems to be on board with Constantine's plan to press the issue. Um, mayor Jenny Durkin, of course, of Seattle, supports vaccine uh, verification. And in the past month, Mayor Durkin, uh, city government and public health officials have been listening to our residents, they say. So they're, they're small businesses, they're nonprofits and venues. And we've heard that vaccination is a necessary public health policy for our communities. And this, is, this comes from uh, a city spokesman, uh, Kelsey Nyland. And the, the, the potential rules seem to have wide appeal, she says, in, in a recent uh, Eater Seattle survey. More than 87 respondents said they want the city to institute a proof of vaccine policy for indoor dining. And the majority uh, revealed they were already seeking out places that instituted their own vaccine requirements. I mean, I will, I'll tell you, I, I, if I hear of a place that isn't requiring 
masks and things like that. I, I that's where we go as far as my family, but <laughs> they're saying that it's just the opposite. Now we're at a critical point in the pandemic. She uh, says Constantine at his September 7th statement, uh, quote, in a country where more than four out of five eligible residents have taken advantage of the opportunity to be vaccinated against COVID vaccine verification is the best way for businesses and gatherings to remain open, vibrant, and full capacity. So, so you, so, so you say to me, okay, this is definitely, you know, New York, San Francisco, Seattle, some parts of British Columbia, these places, uh, they're, they're fairly liberal. And, and of course they're going to come out with some fairly liberal policies, but you know, Doug, that, that could never go national. Well, this is from a New York Post Post article uh, in, dated uh, September 13th, and it's about Anthony Fauci. And he says that he would support vaccination requirements for air travel. Dr. Anthony Fauci has expressed his support for COVID-19 vaccination requirements for air travel, as the Biden administration did not rule it out. Quote, I would support that if you want to get on a plane and travel with other people, that you should be vaccinated, unquote. And this is the White House, the White House chief medical advisor said uh, this in an interview with the Skim podcast, which is the, the Hill reported about this. Um, on Friday, the White House coronavirus response team coordinator, Jeff Zainz, he, he said that the administration is, quote, not taking any measures off the table, unquote. And when asked if it had ruled out ever implementing vaccine or testing requirements for domestic flights, that that's what they said, that they're not ruling it out. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said later in the day, quote, we are always looking at more we can do to protect the light, protect and save lives. Obviously, he made a significant and bold announcement yesterday, so I don't have anything to preview, predict, or preview for you, but we'll continue to look for ways to save more lives, unquote. This is what Jen Psaki said. Now, she is referring to, to Biden's announcement Thursday, this last Thursday that, uh, that businesses with 100 employees or more would have to require their staff either to, to get jabbed or be tested weekly. Um, or, or actually face some pretty heavy fines, like $14,000 an instance. The president also um, directed the Transportation Security Administration to uh, double fines levied against travelers who refuse to wear masks. That's already uh, being done. So meanwhile, Representative Don Byer, now get this, he's a Democrat from Virginia, and he announced Thursday that he would introduce legislation requiring travelers to present proof of vaccination or a negative test within 72 hours of boarding a domestic flight or traveling on Amtrak trains. Now, on Sunday, U.S. Surgeon General uh, Dr. Vivek uh, Murthy, um, they, they defended the, the Biden's administration not requiring proof of vaccination for air travel, saying that unvaccinated people need to be able to fly during emergencies which is a little bit interesting, right? Now, Murthy uh, said on CNN that it was, quote, reasonable to consider implementing 
vaccine rules for travel, but also necessary to take into account equity concerns, as they put it. Quote, we know that when it comes to mandating vaccines for travel, that there are important issues around equity that would have to be worked out to ensure that people, for example, if they had to travel in the case of an emergency to see a relative who just got sick, would be able to do that, even if you know they aren't vaccinated. Now, Republicans have reacted angrily to the vaccine requirements, obviously. According to Biden and the Biden administration of unconstitutional overreach of power, and it definitely is an unconstitutional overreach of power to mandate that people be vaccinated before they can get on an airplane. Now, in the skim, this podcast, which was taped on Friday and is set to be released Thursday, Fauci also um, reiterated his support for the student vaccine mandates, arguing that such a policy exists for for other illnesses. He said this, and and how, how this has anything to do with the COVID vaccine, I don't know, but let's let's see what he had to say. It says, "Quote: When you hear us say, should you mandate vac- vaccination for children to be able to attend school, some people say, oh my goodness, that would be terrible to do that. But we already do that and have been doing that for decades and decades, is what Dr. Fauci said. Quote, I don't know what school you went to, but the school that I went to, you had to be vaccinated for measles, mumps, rubella, polio, or, or otherwise you couldn't go to school, is what he said. But, of course, we're not talking about those type of things. And all of those have exemptions. If you want to be exempted from that on, on religious, uh, philosophical, or even medical reasons, you can do that. You can have those exemptions. And you can also, if you, you don't have to go to public school, you can. There, there is such thing as homeschool or private schooling. So there, so this is definitely not the same thing. And we're not even talking about a vaccine. These are not vaccines. These do not prevent you from getting COVID. They, they are symptom reducers, <laughs> because if you do get COVID, then you know they might make it little easier on you when it comes to your symptoms. So we're not talking about real vaccines here. Now, all of this after a report that just came out about Dr. Fauci. And this is kind of interesting because Dr. Fauci, and, and you, you know, if you've listened to this podcast, you know, I am not a fan of Dr. Fauci. Uh, he has continually lied over and over again. He has flip-flopped over and over again. And, and you just can't trust what he has to say, because what he has to say today is probably going to change tomorrow. And, and it, what he has to say is not based on science whatsoever. There's so much out there that is contrary to what he's pushing. And so we start to see some patterns and some things that are coming out about Dr. Fauci that are making some of this stuff, um, in, it's starting to enlighten people a little bit about Dr. Fauci. And I, I, one of the things that I have had an issue with 
with how this whole coronavirus thing was handled, particularly by us here in the United States, is that we aren't going by the science. We aren't talking about natural immunity. We aren't talking about the fact that that you are 13 times more likely to, to be protected from the coronavirus than if you got the vaccine. We aren't talking about that kind of thing. And and when you say that we're going to need a vaccine card, a passport, whatever you want to call it, in order to get around places or go eat in a restaurant or go to a store, well, that's against the science. That's not right. That's segregating a population. And when we and when we when we see our top medical officials that are denying all this, that, that are that are sending us down a path that doesn't make any logical sense and doesn't make any, any sense scientifically, then you have to wonder what's going on. And so oftentimes, when you see things that aren't logical, you just simply have to follow the money. And so that's what some people have been doing. They've been following the money. And this is, is a, um, here's, here's a report that just came out just the other day about Dr. Fauci. And, and this, this one, of course, from the Daily Wire, uh, and, and it came out on September 7th, it says, Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the U.S. National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease and the chief medical advisor to President Joe Biden, is facing calls to answer for a shocking report published by The Intercept about the so-called gain-of-function research that the National Institute of Health funded at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. The WIV is, is thought to be the possible origin point of, of COVID-19, where, where it, it actually became a thing, right? In May of 2021, this year, Dr. Fauci, in his testimony to a Senate committee um, investigating whether the U.S.-funded gain-of-function research at the Wuhan Institute uh, claimed that the NIH, that's his group, has not entered and does not now fund gain-of-function research in the Wuhan Institute. Now, let me stop here just for a second. What he's talking about when he talks about gain-of-function research, okay? Now, again, we, we've done a podcast on this. You can go back, at, at, of course, at uncommonsensepodcast.com. You can go back and you can listen to uh, to those those podcasts where we talk about what a- Anthony Fauci is, is is saying here and what his testimony has been. Gain of function research is this. It's basically making a a virus into like a super virus. It's making it extra potent. Taking a a virus that, you know, might not be all that bad and making it really bad so that you can do research on it. So it, it, it's easier to do research on, on a virus that's really bad than it is one that's just sort of bad. It's like, okay, did, did, did this rat get, you know, get the, the virus or not? Or did the, you know, so you can actually see, yeah, wow, wow, this bat got this, this thing. That's called gain of function research. And it was being done at the Wuhan Institute there in China. And guess who was funding them with U.S. tax dollars? Dr. Anthony Fauci's group was doing that. And then in May, he said they weren't doing that. So he lied. It says the intercept, however, 
found through a Freedom of Information Act request uh, evidence that the NIH, that's Fauci's group, issued a bat coronavirus grant. That's what they called it, quote, bat coronavirus grant, unquote, to a group called EcoHealth Alliance for $3.1 million, including $599,000 that the Wuhan Institute used in part to identify and alter bat coronaviruses likely to infect humans. Now, that's pretty convincing evidence right there that this is exactly what happened. And as the Daily Wire reported uh, Tuesday, that Dr. Richard Embright, a a molecular uh, biologist at the Rutgers University and an expert who spoke to The Intercept, elaborated on the findings on Twitter. He said this, he said, quote, the material shows that the the 2014 and 2019 NIH grants to EcoHealth with subgrants to the Wuhan Institute funded gain-of-function research and defined in the federal policy that was effective 2014 to 2017. You see, basically, what they're saying is that they had to do this in China because it was illegal to do gain-of-function research here in the United States. You couldn't do it here because it was illegal. It was made illegal. It's, it's dangerous. And so they said, oh, okay, fine. Then we'll just fund it with U.S. dollars over there in China where it's not illegal. Quote, the materials reveal that the resulting novel Laboratory-generated SARS-related coronavirus also could infect mice engineered to display human receptors on cells, humanized mice. And he added the, the materials further reveal for the first time that one of the resulting novel laboratory-generated SARS-related coronavirus, one not, one not been previously disclosed publicly, was more pathogenic uh, uh, to human mice than the starting virus from which it was conduct, uh, constructed. So in other words, this was what Dr. Fauci says it wasn't. It was gain-of-function research. No doubt about it. Now that puts Dr. Fauci in the spotlight. And it, it calls to question why he's been doing and saying all these things all along. Because if it came out that he was doing this, then he is in big trouble. Now, several Republicans have already suggested that Dr. Fauci must face a full investigation and be totally forthcoming about his his agency's, you know, the, the NIH's involvement in funding research at the Wuhan Institute in China. A Republican Jim Jordan, of course, from Ohio, suggested that that Dr. Fauci is hiding something and should face an investigation. Senator Rand Paul, who of course had the, had a big uh, you know uproar with him and, and a confrontation uh, in Congress, uh, has already referred to Dr. Fauci as as uh, for an investigation for possible perjury related to that testimony uh, to Congress. Now, this is to say nothing about the segregation of people by race. We're just talking about segregating people by you know, by the fact that whether or not you're vaccinated or not. And, but we are heading towards 
ostracizing 25% of Americans because they won't get a medicine that doesn't prevent you from getting a disease that has a 99.97% survival rate. You see, I think this is a dangerous, a very dangerous road to go down. When we start saying to, to, to people, well, you know what, you didn't get the virus, so you can't go to restaurants, you can't go to, to, to concerts, you can't go to sporting events, you can't fly on, on airplanes, you can't go and get on an Amtrak train. When, when, when you, these are just the things they're saying now. What more are they going to say in the future? Are people who are not vaccinated... Are they going to have to go to these little concentration camps and live their lives on tiny little islands? Is that where we're heading? That is a slippery slope. And this is definitely not constitutional and not a road we want to go down. Now, you may agree and you may disagree, and I would definitely love to hear from you. Of course, that can be done at UncommonSensePodcast.com. You can also go to our Facebook page, and and I would if, if you wouldn't mind... If you haven't already done so, go to our Facebook page, hit the like button. That's going to help us uh, spread the, the word about this, this podcast, and it's a growing podcast. We definitely appreciate you listening. And, of course, you know the, the more that it grows, the more people can hear truth, and that's what we are. We're seekers of truth. And thank you very much for listening. This podcast is a production of Morganite Communications.